I'm speaking with composer, conductor, orchestrator Peter Boyer. Uh, Peter's music has been commissioned and performed by dozens of symphonies and orchestras uh, across the country. Outside of concert work, he has served as an orchestrator for some of Hollywood's top composers, as well as composed original scores for some amazing projects as well. Uh, Peter will now see his work uh, titled Ellis Island, The Dream of America, debut on TV on PBS's Great Performances. It airs on June 29th at 9 p.m. and will be available to stream afterwards. So, uh, Peter, thank you so much for uh, speaking today. My pleasure. Thank you, Kaya. So I would love to start to kind of know kind of your background and uh, how did you fall in love with music and at what point in your life did you decide to make a career out of it? Uh, well, I suppose one could start when I was a teenager. Um, I did not sort of start with music, you know, directly out of the womb like a lot of composers and was not a, a very young starter in that way. Um, but during my teenage years, I essentially was in love with Billy Joel tunes and wanting to do that kind of pop music, uh, you know, starting from about age 15. And so when I was 15 years old, I asked my grandmother, my paternal grandmother to uh, buy me a piano, which she promptly and happily did and started playing and uh, singing pop tunes, uh, you know, in high school. And that was really how that musical journey began. And uh, essentially two things happened in my high school years that coalesced to really be a formative experience for me. Um, when I was 17 years old, I was studying classical repertoire for the first time in a high school music history course in my junior year at Smithfield High School in Smithfield, Rhode Island, and was uh, essentially coming into contact with this music for the first time and heard the Mozart Requiem uh, for the first time, which really made a strong impression on me. And uh, about that exact same time, my grandmother, the one I just mentioned, uh, passed away uh, unexpectedly. Oh, wow. And as a 17-year-old, I got the kind of crazy, ambitious idea that I would write a Requiem Mass uh, and that I would uh, complete this piece and dedicate it to my grandmother. And that's essentially what I did. And so from age 15 to 17, uh, over the course of those two years, I wrote this piece with basically no composition training at all. And it was quite a long story, but at the end of that process, um, I had a piece that was 40 minutes long or so and um, got entrepreneurial and during my college years uh, put together a lot of performers from a variety of performing organizations, raised a bunch of money, and, and when I was 20 years old, conducted the premiere of this 40-plus minute Requiem Mass with 300 performers, wow. having never had any never had any formal composition lessons at that point. I actually didn't have any formal composition lessons till later when I went to graduate school. But somehow, uh, you know, the kind of crazy ambition that a teenager can have, or in that case, I had just turned 20, uh, I was able to put this project together. And the response to this Requiem at age 20 was so extraordinary uh, from getting uh, covered in USA Today newspaper to uh, covered by my various local television stations, etc., which is very heady stuff when you're 20 years old. And the, the amazing sold-out audience response to that piece really made a tremendous impression on me at that age. And so at that point, I suppose the musical journey was, was pretty well set. Wow. And uh, going forward from that, did you pursue uh, music education in college? 
I actually had started off as a music education major at Rhode Island College and then realized uh, that that was not exactly the path that I wanted to do and just ended up getting a, a general bachelor's degree in music. That Requiem project happened in the middle of my junior year and then I did another very big project, a cantata for chamber orchestra and chamber choir and soloist in my senior year. Um, and so, uh, and then went, went to graduate school at the Hart School of Music at the University of Hartford and did a, a master's and a doctorate there over a very intensive four-year period and studied uh, composition and conducting both equally before I moved out to Los Angeles following that. Oh, wow. And so at what point in your life did it start to become like an actual career? Because I know, I mean, as an artist and as a storyteller and as, as a musician, uh, it's important to kind of, you know, create the work, but also to actually live off your work. I mean, were you able to really kind of build your career off the ground and make this the only thing that you were doing? Uh, that's a really big question. You know, I, I do a variety of things. And uh, as time has gone on, the percentage of these things has shifted somewhat. So um, following my uh, completing my my DMA degree, my doctoral degree at the Hart School, I, I also uh, studied briefly in New York City with John Corleano. Uh, so I was a private student of his before moving out to L.A. And then I did that to complete the film and TV scoring program at USC, as so many have done. And uh, so in my case, that was essentially after having completed a doctorate. And so I had um, both kind of a complete, if you will, academic background, as well as a more, um, you know, focused area in, in film and TV. And so I wanted to pursue all of these things with equal vigor, and uh, and I certainly did initially, and also uh, landed a, a teaching position that came my way rather early on at uh, Claremont Graduate University. So there's been a lot of juggling going on, but um, essentially the things that have borne fruit have been, in a very big way, the life as a concert composer, particularly in the orchestral realm, and that's really come to dominate uh, my work and my life to a larger extent than I had imagined. And, and then in the film and TV world, primarily has been as an orchestrator. So, um, so I, I've tried to juggle and balance these things as they've all gone on. But to answer your question about the earliest time period, I started to have some wonderful concert music opportunities fairly early on. So in 1995, when I was 25, um, I wrote an orchestral tone poem called Titanic which was, as the title would suggest, about uh, the sinking of the Titanic, a 13-minute tone poem. And this was actually two years before James Cameron's film came out. And at the time that I composed the piece, I was completely unaware of this massive phenomenon film that was uh, being made and that was going to be released in 1997. And that piece, um, Titanic, won the BMI Student Composer Award for me for the second time. So that was... Uh, significant national recognition and then got some orchestral performances with the Young Musicians Foundation debut orchestra and with the Hartford Symphony. So that was really my first professional uh, orchestral premiere in Hartford when I was 27. And that started a essentially a chain of professional orchestral performances and commissions that has continued to this day. So as as the years have gone by, that's become a a larger and larger part of my life. Uh, and, and I also did start to get some of my earliest opportunities to orchestrate uh, for Hollywood composers a few years after that. And that also has become a fairly big part of what I do. Right. And uh, yeah, so I mean, you do orchestrate for a lot of 
uh, great composers like James Newton Howard, Michael Giacchino, and Thomas Newman, and many, many more. Um, and I'm always curious, as you know, an orchestrator is such an integral part of that, uh, the composing process. Um, and as you've worked with kind of all these different composers, do you, I'm just curious about the process of that. Do you have to adapt to each composer's style, their workflow? I mean, does your job change, I guess, depending on who you're orchestrating for? Uh, there are certainly commonalities between uh, all of them. I mean, I guess it's been about a dozen or so composers for whom I've orchestrated at different yeah. times. Um, the last couple of years, uh, the primary person for whom I've orchestrated has been James Newton Howard. And uh, I should emphasize with all of these folks that um, I'm not the lead orchestrator on any of these teams. So I do work um, very closely in conjunction with the lead orchestrator in all these cases. And so in the case of James Newton Howard, that's Pete Anthony, who's you know absolutely brilliant at what he does uh, and leads that team. But the process uh, obviously has certain similarities in that these days the technology with sequencers and MIDI and amazing orchestral sample libraries allows for the creation of extremely elaborate demos. And of course the demos are what are approved um, by the filmmakers and so they they become the defining factor of, of what the orchestrations need to sound like but there's still there's still a lot of work to be done obviously there's still a lot of detail work and uh, the workflow is a little bit different from composer to composer um, which software might be used etc but you know the good news is audio is audio and you know, MIDI is MIDI and so regardless of the uh, you know, the format or the sequencer, et cetera, uh, the, the basic material with which one works these days is going to be pretty consistent. But uh, there's always a process of interpreting exactly what was done to create these amazing sounding demos, looking at the specific orchestral forces which are going to be employed for that project, uh, and sometimes also with choral forces and, you know, additional percussion or soloists, et cetera and making sure that what gets onto the page for the conductor and then you know for the uh, extraction of the parts and for the orchestra is going to produce those results as accurately as possible and um and with these highly detailed demos that these folks use there's not a lot of creativity that goes into it as much as there is a technical work and understanding what an orchestra needs to see, what the players need to see individually and collectively to make this work. So I think of it uh, in many ways as, as putting together a puzzle and trying to figure out what the solution to the puzzle may be. And there may be more than one solution at a given moment. But um, so that's it. You know, in a way, it's, it's very much related to being a composer. And yet it's not being a composer because uh, one is executing the vision of another composer. And in the case of all these folks, the vision of a composer who is extraordinarily gifted and experienced and successful uh, and so there's a lot of gratitude that goes on of just being grateful for those opportunities absolutely well let's uh, focus a little bit more on, on your own work and i want to talk about ellis island uh the dream of america which is uh, the piece that will be featured on great performances uh later this month uh what was let's start at the beginning what was your inspiration for writing this and creating this and take us through that journey of how we're getting to you know it's performance and you had so many great guest stars involved and now uh, PBS will be airing it. Yes, it's certainly you know the culmination of a long, long process, a long journey. It's very exciting for yeah. me. Um, uh, I composed the piece uh, Ellis Island, The Dream of America, over a one-year period between 2001 and 2002, and it was commissioned by the Bushnell Center for the Performing Arts, which is the major performing arts center in Hartford, Connecticut, 
I had connections there because I had done my master's and my doctorate at the Hart School of Music. Um, and so that was how I initially was able to make a connection to get them to consider this commission. Although that entity commissioned it and the Hartford Symphony premiered it uh, under my direction, um, the idea originated with me, not with them. And essentially around 1999, 2000, I had been thinking what my next project might be as a composer. I had uh, composed several pieces that were based on either history or mythology of different sorts. Uh, Titanic, as I mentioned, Ghosts of Troy, which is uh, based on Homer's Iliad, a piece called The Phoenix, um, a piece called Three Olympians. And I had in mind that I wanted to tackle some sort of significant American subject matter uh, as an American composer, which seemed natural to do. And I think more than anything, the thing that brought me to the idea was an awareness of the famous words by Emma Lazarus of the sonnet called The New Colossus, which is inscribed on the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty. And of course, growing up in America at some point as a child, I can't tell you exactly when, you know, I, I like so many other Americans, became familiar with the closing words uh, of that great sonnet, the words of give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore, etc. And, you know, I wanted to explore these words and, uh, and what they meant. And interestingly, thinking about the Titanic and having composed this piece um, and the stories of so many of these immigrants who were bound to America on the Titanic, but who never made it and who perished. That also was a factor that led me to think about early 20th century immigration. So it hit me at one point in that period that a piece for spoken word and orchestra that would focus on early 20th century immigration might be a really terrific piece, really a terrific idea. And the first thing that I explored when I had that idea was the question of had anyone actually done this? Uh, was there any piece that existed in the standard repertoire or outside the standard repertoire for spoken word and orchestra about Ellis Island? And as I began to research that, as far as I could tell, there was not such a piece. And I was kind of surprised because I thought it was an idea that um, that was a ripe one. And so I thought, okay, you know, I, I'm not competing with some existing piece. So this seems like um, a very good idea to pursue. And as soon as I started to research Ellis Island in any kind of detail, I learned of the existing uh, existence of something which came to define the project, which is something called the Oral History Project, the Ellis Island Oral History Project. And this is an amazing collection of uh, over 2,000 interviews that is housed at Ellis Island at the Immigration Museum. Wow. And these, these interviews began in the 1970s and uh, really gathered steam in the later 1980s and early 1990s around the opening uh, of the Ellis Island Immigration Museum. And this is a true treasure trove in American history. The, the collective um, information that's contained and the stories and the humanity uh, of the Oral History Project is, is really remarkable. So I realized that the material was absolutely here to be the basis of this piece. And so as I began researching them, um, I realized that it was much too large a collection of material for me to ever go through it all. Um, so I got some guidance from the woman who at the time was running the Oral History Project. And I ended up 
examining uh, over 100 interviews, maybe 120, something like that, and eventually uh, brought about 20 of them back to my studio in, uh, in Southern California in the form of transcripts and cassettes. These were actually on cassette. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, it was really fascinating to hear these voices of real people who were old people. Uh, they were in their 80s or 90s. Some were as young as their 70s, but often in their 80s or 90s. And they were recalling experiences from decades before that were still so vivid in their memories. And um, I knew that there was just a lot of material here that was really going to to be the basis for a piece. And in the end, I ended up choosing uh, seven stories of four women and three men who uh, came from seven different countries in Europe and Russia through Ellis Island over a 30-year period between 1910 and 1940. Um, and so then that became the basis for the piece. And I, and I knew that I wanted to not work with a writer, but to do this myself, to essentially create a script and then compose music based on that script after the script had been settled. So it turned out to be nearly a year project, about five months of um, basically doing research and gathering materials and editing, and then about six months of composing the score, which is a 45-minute score of uh, over 1,000 bars, and then one rather crazy month at the end, uh, orchestrating the entire thing. Wow. That is, I mean, that is so, imp- I mean, that's such a, it must feel, I mean, I mean, just to just have the finished product and I mean, you have it premiered now, but it's already been recorded and everything, but now to have it aired, I mean, that must be so satisfying just for you. <laughs> a- absolutely. And I mean, the thing is, so the piece was premiered in, in 2002, in April of 2002. And, um, you know, so the, the initial performance, the premiere, was with the Hartford Symphony Orchestra, a group of actors uh, from New York City who were cast and directed by a man named Martin Charnin, who uh, is very well known in the, in the theater world, the musical theater world, uh, primarily as the lyricist and director of Annie, the original oh, musical wow, yeah. Annie from the 70s. Uh, and, and he was working with the Bushnell on a different project, and the Bushnell essentially paired us up together and Martin, um, uh, to my great uh, happiness, was very impressed and wanted to get involved and he got that first group of actors together. He also uh, both cast and coached in the recording studio the actors who did my recording. Um, I went to London in 2003 and I recorded the orchestral tracks with the great Philharmonia Orchestra at Air Studios uh, in one day. Wow. (laughs) One marvelous day uh, on a Sunday. Uh, And then six months later, recorded this wonderful cast of actors in New York City doing voiceovers uh, of reading reading all these stories. And so I had such amazing actors and actresses as uh, Eli Wallach and Olympia Dukakis, um, Barry Bostwick, B.B. Newirth, Blair Brown, etc. So really marvelous experience. And then the recording was uh, chosen by Noxos for its American Classic series and was released in 2005, and to my great joy, then later received a Grammy nomination for Best Contemporary Classical Composition. So that was a true surprise and um, certainly one of the highlights of my career as a composer to have that that kind of recognition with the with the Grammy nomination. But but all of that is is way back in you know between 2003 and 2005, and here we are in 2018, and this 
piece was filmed last year in 2017. And in all these intervening years, the piece has not ceased to be performed, which has been really a, a great joy for me. Um, the piece has had, at this point, uh, as of today, it's had 181 performances <laughs> by wow. 80 different orchestras. Um, and there are 20 performances of it scheduled over the next year by another dozen orchestras. And that all of that is before it's actually been seen on television. So I really could not have foreseen the extent to which it was going to become part of my life on, on a daily basis. Um, it, it's just been remarkable. And the reaction from people around the country has been really remarkable. So now, uh, with all these people who've seen it over these many years, that number of people is going to be surpassed uh, by a factor of several times in one night on yeah. June 29th <laughs> when, uh, when this is seen on great performances for, I don't know how many, but you know, per perhaps in the neighborhood of a couple million people, uh, we'll see it on over 300 PBS stations. And the production quality of the, the finished product is just so wonderful. The Pacific Symphony, Carl St. Clair, this amazing cast of actors, with, uh, folks like Cameron Mannheim and Barry Bostwick and Michael Norrie and Leslie Farah, et cetera. Um, so it, it, it's been an, an incredibly long journey for me, but it's very exciting now that this is about to be seen by so many people. Yeah, and I think it's the timing is so perfect too, because I mean, we're living in this, the time of this, the administration that we have right now, and and we have the spotlight on how we're treating people and immigration, and I think it's still so relevant today, and even more so right now. And I think it's important. So I think it's the fact that it, that the, your work that you've created, you know, so long ago is still just culturally re relevant and, and and an important thing for people to experience. I think is awesome as well. Thank you. Yeah, I, I certainly agree. And again, how could I have foreseen in two thousand one, two thousand two? Uh, you know, that the time period in which this would finally make its way onto a national television broadcast would be a time in which immigration is seemingly daily uh, in the newspapers, in discussions, is, is the subject of very heated controversies. And, you know, it always has been, um, but, but today I think even more so than it has been in, in many decades. And I, you know, my intention was never to create any kind of a, a political work or make a political statement. Um, you know, I'm not that really that kind of a composer, but rather to have an historical piece, a celebration of this time in America's history that was so crucial in building this nation. And to whatever extent that may be the subject of certain conversations now when people see and hear it, uh, you know that's great, but ultimately it's it's a work of the performing arts, and that's that's what it's meant to be to to be seen and and experienced and enjoyed. Absolutely, and um, so to to you know to wrap up, I'd love to ask you, um, you know, you, you've written concert works on several historical topics, and 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 a lot of other composers as well. I know John Powell is actually just releasing uh, an album for his Prussian Requiem, which is based on World War One. It seems there's so much inspiration in history for composers, and you mentioned that your piece on the Titanic. Are there any historical periods or events that you haven't explored yet via music that you would love to tackle one day? Huh, that's a <laughs> that's a big question. Um, yeah, I'm I'm sure there are. I mean, uh, you know, it, one thing about composing for the orchestra is the great narrative power of the orchestra, um, and you know, to ally that with history and with you know either sung or spoken word is a very powerful combination. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, if the right uh, project came along there are any number of things that one can imagine doing. And of course, it's also a little daunting because you realize whichever historical period uh, one is going to attempt to tackle, probably there have been folks who have been there before. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, 
uh, like the idea of a requiem. I mean, when when you know when when one is twenty years old, uh, you're kind of fearless, and so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> but now, you know, now, for example, if I were to be asked to write a requiem, I think I'd actually be far more scared. Um, you know, because the more that you know, the more you realize you don't know. Um, <laughs> the more that you uh, you know come in contact with these great statements from the past. I mean, whether it's Britain's War Requiem or any number of pieces. Um, one begins to realize, oh, I'll, I'll never live up to that kind of standard. But yeah, I do think that history and historical topics are pretty inexhaustible for composers. So I would imagine that there'll be a time in which I will return to one or more historical eras, one hopes. <laughs> well, Peter, I want to thank you so much uh, for your time today and, and sharing your story. And, and congratulations on such an accomplishment. I, I think it's uh, people don't realize how much work it's, it's gone to it and the journey it's gone and journey that it's still going to go on. So uh, thank you. congratulations again. And, and it's, it was so great to, to hear your approach and your insight into it. Thank you for having me on. And uh, I hope that uh, your many listeners will enjoy having a chance to listen to this.